If you're not still there, make your way back to 2 Timothy 3 as we conclude our short series on the centrality of Scripture in the life of the church. There's a scene in Tolkien's The Hobbit where the dwarves are preparing to cross through Mirkwood, which is this dark and and dangerous forest, but it's the only thing standing between them and their final destination, the lonely mountain where they hope to reclaim their lost kingdom. But the evening before they're supposed to make this trek through the forest, Gandalf, uh, the wizard who's guided their party, who's protected them, who's rescued them several times, he informs them that he's not going with them. He's not going any farther with them. And the dwarves, when they hear this, are just filled with despair. How in the world are we going to make it through this forest? What if we get lost? What if we encounter more goblins or, or, or something worse? But before he departs, Gandalf gives them one final instruction. Don't leave the path. Stay on the path. If you stay on the path, you just might make it through Mirkwood and out the other side. If you leave the path, a thousand to one, you'll never find it again and never get out of Mirkwood. Now, when I read... 2 Timothy. I I wonder if Timothy felt a little bit like the dwarves standing at the edge of Mirkwood when he received this letter from Paul, recognizing the dangerous path in front of him, but now realizing that Paul's not going with him any further. Paul describes the dangerous situation facing the church in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Walking in faithfulness to Christ is not going to be easy for God's people. But then Paul tells Timothy the really bad news, that he's about to die. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who've loved his appearing. Which is great for Paul. But what about Timothy? What about the church? What will they do? Paul had been Timothy's Gandalf. He'd been his guide and his mentor. He and the apostles, they were the church's connection to Jesus. They were the ones who who knew him, who, who walked and lived with him, who heard his teaching, who saw him raised from the dead. Who, who passed on his teaching, and now, like Paul, they're all dying. How will the church hear from God? 
now that the apostles will no longer be around? How will, it, how will the church make its way faithfully through Mirkwood and avoid the false teaching and the false living that surrounds us? How do we stay true to Christ if Paul's not going to be around any longer? That's really what this letter is about. It is Paul's final instructions to Timothy and the church at the edge of Mirkwood just before he departs. And his central charge comes in chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. That's Paul's version of don't leave the path. Preach the word. Hold fast to the word. Look again at... uh, at the charge that Paul gives Timothy in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And, and notice how it addresses the problem that, that he raised at the beginning of chapter 3. He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. How's the church going to remain faithful and healthy and effective until Christ returns? Preach the word. And the word that Paul's talking about here is the all scripture that he references in chapter 3, verse 16. To stay on the path is to hold fast to the scriptures. Don't add to them or take away from them. Don't depart either to the right or to the left. The scriptures are the sufficient revelation of God for the ongoing life, health, and ministry of the church. Now, that idea raises a few questions that I want to explore together this morning. Uh, Namely, what word, why the word, and what now? So first, what word, what does Paul mean when he says all Scripture? Because different Christian traditions have answered that question differently throughout history. Second, why the word? What is it about the scriptures that make them this sufficient revelation of God such that we need not add to them or take away from them or improve upon them, but just to hold fast to them? And then third, what now? What actual difference does all of this make if the Bible is this sufficient word of God? So the first question is what word? What word? And we're talking here about what we call the canon of Scripture, canon with one N in the middle. What does Paul refer to when he says all Scripture is breathed out by God? And and to answer that question of what he's talking about here, we have to look at the broader passage itself, the broader context. So again, in in chapter 3, Paul has warned Timothy about the waywardness that is going to happen in these last days, as he puts it, which is, is what, uh, a phrase that Paul and the New Testament writers use to refer to the time period between Christ's first and second coming. 
And, and so he's warning Timothy, but then as he, after he warns him, he offers this contrast in verses 10 to 17, where he basically says, they're going to do all this, but not you. I know you better, and you know better than to wander off the path. He says to him in verse 14, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Stay on the path. And, and, and there are two things that motivate him to do that. First, knowing from whom you've learned it. So he's got examples of people in his life who have gone before him and alongside him. So he's got these examples, people like Paul or like his mother or his grandmother. And then second, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Two things that motivate Timothy to stay on the path, the example of godly people and the scriptures of God. And, and it's important to recognize, though Paul is, is going to anchor Timothy in the scriptures, he's not just pointing him to a book as if a, you know, a librarian hands you a copy and says, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning, right? Walking with God is intensely relational. This is lived out in community. I mean, Paul shares his life with Timothy. If you look again at verse 10, he says, Timothy, you, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Paul's life has been an open book to Timothy. He has walked with him uh, in every way. And yet the whole aim of sharing that life is to ground Timothy, not in Paul's example, but in the word of God that Paul's trying to follow. The point is the scriptures. So these scriptures, the same scriptures that his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois imparted to him since childhood, if you go back to chapter one, verse five, Paul points Timothy, we need one another. We need those godly examples, but we need godly examples that are gathered around the word. That's what makes the difference to a faithful church that holds fast all the way to the end. And, and we must gather around the word because as he says in 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God might be competent, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are the sufficient revelation of God for the life, health, and ministry of his church. But then comes our question, okay, what word? What word is Paul talking about? What scriptures? What does he mean by that phrase, all scriptures? And in the immediate context of 2 Timothy 4, Paul is primarily talking about the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament was being written. It was still in formation when Paul was writing this. And so the main Bible for the early church was the Old Testament scriptures. Even though you can see by the time that, that say, for instance, 1 Timothy's written, he's quoting Matthew as scripture. Or, or 2 Peter. Peter quotes Paul as scripture in 2 Peter 3. So you begin to see the recognition of the church on those New Testament documents such that while Paul is, is talking about the Old Testament when he says all scripture, 
What he says about the Old Testament can be rightly applied to everything that, that belongs in the Bible. I, I believe we are on solid ground when we apply this verse to the whole of what belongs in the Bible. But then that raises another question, so what actually belongs in the Bible? How do we know these 66 books are the ones that, that God is speaking through and in to his people? Should we expect any more books? In other words, what, what is the canon of Scripture? What is the canon of Scripture? When we use canon like that today, uh, nowadays most people are talking about Marvel movies, like which ones actually belong in the official storyline, or Star Wars, you know, is, is Bad Batch canon or not, right? But, but what we're talking about with Scripture is the official standard collection of books that belong in the Bible, this authoritative list of books. And is that canon closed? Or should we expect new episodes or, or something like that? And, and this is an important question for lots of reasons, but not least because the Protestant Bible that you have in your hand has fewer books than a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox Bible. So which, what, what actually belongs in here? Now, some of us have grown up in a Catholic context or an Orthodox context, and so you're probably familiar with what's called the Apocrypha, which is a word that means hidden. Uh, these are the, the 14 or so additional books that you'll find in a Catholic or Orthodox Bible that you don't find in a, in a Protestant Bible, uh, which is to say that Protestants do not recognize those books as Scripture. We don't recognize those as belonging in the Bible because we do not recognize them as the Word of God. They're not bad to read. In fact, they're quite interesting and, and helpful for history and, and even edifying. But they're not the word of God. That is the, the, the Protestant conviction. And there are several reasons why Protestants have held that conviction uh, throughout history. Now, this is a big conversation, but I want to give you just four brief reasons of why uh, we do not consider the additional books or portions of books in a Catholic Bible to be part of the Bible itself. So first, though those books come from the time before Christ and are typically included among the Old Testament, none of the apocryphal books were ever recognized by Israel as divine scripture. And the church gets the Old Testament from Israel. We inherited the Old Testament. We didn't decide what was in that. We received it. And so the fact that Israel never recognized those books, even though they had them, that's kind of a big deal. Second, None of the apocryphal writings themselves ever claim to be scripture, which is also kind of a big deal. You know, for instance, in the, in the prologue to uh, what's called Ben Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, it, it explicitly distinguishes itself from the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, third, none of the apocryphal writings are ever quoted in the New Testament as scripture. And then finally, uh, it wasn't until after the Protestant Reformation had challenged the inspiration of, of the apocryphal books that the Catholic Church actually officially canonized them and, and included them in, in the Council of Trent in 1546. Up to that point, Catholics were even divided over whether or not those books belonged in the Bible, uh, to the point that Jerome, who 
translated the Latin Vulgate, which is the foundation of the Catholic Bible, he did not consider them books of the Bible, but rather books of the church. And so there are good reasons to apply what Paul says about all scripture to the 66 books in the Bible that's in your lap. These books are the sufficient revelation of God for the life, health, and ministry of the church. But should we expect more books? Right? Maybe, maybe not the Apocrypha, but, but are we waiting for another edition, another testament, or something like that? In other words, is the canon closed? It's another important question. Is the Bible finished? But to answer that question, uh, we need to consider our second big question, why the Bible? So, so what word and why the word? What we call the sufficiency of Scripture. When you look at 2 Timothy, of all of the things that Paul could have pointed Timothy to in order to be the safeguard that's going to get him and the church safely through Mirkwood, of all of the things that he could have pointed them to in order to to survive this dark and, and deadly world we live in, why is Scripture his emphasis? He doesn't point to an infallible office of leadership. He doesn't point to a living prophet. He points to an abiding word of God, the scriptures. The apostolic message written down for all generations. And he does it because, as as one author puts it, the scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. They are sufficient. And you can see that right in Paul's words to Timothy in chapter 3. The scriptures are sufficient for both salvation and godliness, for for coming to know Jesus, beginning a relationship with Christ, and then for growing up in Jesus, for, for what we call sanctification or spiritual growth. They're sufficient for both of those things, and we see both of those in chapter 3. If you look again at 3.15, How from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation because they reveal to us our sufficient Savior, Jesus, the one who who restores God's vision for creation, who, who... accomplishes all of God's promises and plans to redeem a people for himself through his own life, death, and resurrection for us so that all who believe in him might have life. That Jesus carries out God's plans. He is our sufficient savior. He's the overarching message of the scriptures. And and it's through this word that bears witness to Christ that we can have the salvation that God offers. To the point that the New Testament actually describes us in 1 Peter as being born again through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is sufficient for our salvation. Another way to, to, to think of this, the word of God does the work of God as the spirit applies it to our lives. The word of God does the work of God as the spirit 
applies it to our lives. And that's true not just for salvation, for for beginning with Christ. It's true for, for sanctification and godliness, for growing up in Christ. That's what Paul talks about next. Verses 16 to 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How can a Christian be changed? How can we grow in our knowledge of God? How can we stay on the right path? How are we rebuked for our sin or corrected when we stray? How are we trained in righteousness to be able to serve God? How are we equipped for every good work through the scriptures? That's the source and standard of all of it. As Kevin DeYoung writes in his um, really helpful book called Taking God at His Word, he writes, we do not need to add to the Bible to meet today's challenges or subtract from it to mesh with today's ideals. The Word of God is perfect and complete, giving us all we need to know about Christ, salvation, and godliness. Because Jesus is our sufficient Savior, the Bible is a sufficient revelation of God for the ongoing life of the church. And and that, that's the reason that we can be confident that the canon of Scripture is actually closed, that the Bible is finished and there are no new books waiting to be written because the redemptive work of God in Christ is finished. Revelation bears witness to redemption. God makes himself known to us for our salvation and godliness. And so to suggest that we we need new books, we need a new word, is to suggest that the redemptive work uh, that Christ has done is actually incomplete. That, That Jesus isn't enough. But listen to what Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4 says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There is a finality described in that revelation of God here. Long ago, but now in Jesus, God has spoken to us by his son. There's something final in that revelation because there's something final in the redemption that's being described. After making purification for sins, he sat down. He finished the job. There's no other redemption that needs to be accomplished. It's complete As as DeYoung writes again, we're waiting for no other king to rule us. We need no other prophet like Muhammad. There can be no further priest to atone for sins. 
the work of redemption has been completed. And we must not separate redemption from revelation. Both were finished and fulfilled in the Son. Because Jesus Christ is sufficient for our salvation and spiritual growth, the Bible is sufficient in, its, in revealing God for the life and ministry and health of the church. We have a sufficient word. But one last question. So what now? What, what practical difference does the sufficiency of Scripture make for our everyday lives as followers of Jesus? Well, first, it means we must prioritize the Word of God in the life of the church. And I'm pretty sure I've made that application every single sermon in this series so far. Uh, but for obvious reasons. If, if the word of God is inspired and authoritative and, and, and uh, what was the third one? <laughs> inspired, authoritative, reliable, and sufficient, well then yes, we ought to prioritize it in the life of the church, right? We don't need to add to God's word. We don't need to update it, correct it, change it. We need to read it and study it, to live it, obey it, to preach it and teach it. That's what we need if we're going to stay on the path of following God. Again, Paul's central charge, preach the word. That means, as we've said, every week for the last four weeks, the Bible must be central in every relationship and every ministry of this church. If we're not gathering around the word together, what what counsel can we actually give to each other? What encouragement will actually make a difference in our lives? We need to be a people gathered around the word. Walking with Christ means staying on the path of scripture. Bringing that word to bear on every aspect of life. Uh, this is also, again, when, when it comes to the preaching and teaching of our gathered worship, why our conviction is that the main diet of preaching ought to be what we call expositional preaching. In other words, we are committed to the kinds of sermons where the message and aim of the passage is what drives the message and aim of the sermon itself. We, we want to preach the word. If this is sufficient for the life and health and ministry of God's people, then what we need are not a collection of life hacks or cleverly crafted principles to just get you through the next few days. We need the Bible itself. That's what we need. The word of God. And we need to trust the sufficiency of scripture that God's word will accomplish everything he sends it to do. Isaiah 55. So we need to prioritize scripture in the life of the church. Second, we also need to work hard at handling the word correctly. We need to work hard at handling the word correctly to make sure that what we're saying and believing is what God's actually saying in the passage of Scripture. Paul puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We need to work hard at handling the word correctly. The Bible does not mean whatever we want it to mean. 
I know if you take like a modern literature class, that's how they teach you to read nowadays. Whatever it means to you, that's not how it actually works. The Bible means what God intends it to mean, what he's trying to communicate and reveal to his people. There are always going to be people in this dark and, 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 and dangerous world, the fallen world we live in, there will always be people who are no longer able to endure sound teaching, but who gather around themselves, teachers to, to tickle their ears with what they want to hear rather than what God actually says. We must stay on the path of scripture. We cannot give in to that temptation to just remake the Bible in our own image. We have to work hard at understanding it correctly. And, and that's an important part of Christian discipleship, of learning how to read this book well, which is why we do several classes regularly on how to read the scriptures well. That's an important priority. Uh, but even now, I just want to give you four reminders for for that help us handle God's word well. Four reminders. When you're reading the Bible, keep these four things in mind. Number one, read the Bible in context. Read the Bible in context. When we pay attention to the context of a passage, whether it's the words around it or the history it happens in, when we pay attention to the context, it's a whole lot harder to make the Bible say something it's not actually saying. Uh, for instance, I could suggest to you that Psalm 14 says there is no God. I could even make you turn there and see the words, there is no God, Psalm 14.1. But if you look at the context of that verse, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Context makes all the difference, right? And so we need to read the Bible in context. Second, read the Bible in conversation with God. Read the Bible in conversation with God. In other words, in, with prayer. With prayer. If we need the Spirit of God to apply it to our lives, to open our eyes and ears, to be able to see and, and hear what God is saying, we need to read the Bible in prayer to God. This is not just an intellectual exercise. This is communion with our Father. And so read the Bible in conversation with God. Third, read the Bible in community. So context, conversation with God, community. We need each other to help us understand and apply and obey God's word. None of us can, can figure this out all on our own. We're meant to carry it out in community, to read in community. And that means, it's, again, it's one of the reasons why we have so many things like small groups and, 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 and men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies so that we can come together and read the Bible in community. But that even applies beyond the walls of this church. We need the whole body of Christ uh, to interact with others in, in other traditions even to help us read the Bible better. And even those who've gone before us in, in previous generations, we're not the first ones to inherit this book and read it. There's, there's this whole wonderful heritage we have of Bible readers who've gone before us. So read the Bible in community. And then fourth, read the Bible with an eye toward Christ and his fulfillment. Context, conversation with God, community, and Christ. 
Read the Bible with an eye toward Christ and his fulfillment. He is the center of the biblical story. Every passage in this book either somehow points to him or flows from him. He's the centerpiece. He's the hero of the whole thing. And so read the Bible in and obey the Bible in devotion to and dependence on Christ. I want to read the Bible well. And that brings us then to our final implication this morning. If the Bible is God's sufficient revelation for the life, health, and ministry of the church, then we can't stop by just understanding it. We need to apply the word as though our life depends on it, because it actually does. We need to obey the scriptures. As Moses said to Israel in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8, which is what Jesus quotes in Matthew 4 when he's in the desert, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And in that context, in Deuteronomy 8, he's not just talking about understanding the word or even just believing it. He's talking about obeying it, putting it into practice. We need to obey the Bible like your life depends on it because it actually does. And, and, and not because relationship with God is some sort of legalistic transaction where if I, if I keep these commands, God's going to reward me and do something good. No. Now, the Bible is not a, a handbook of, of, you know, for self-improvement or spiritual bragging rights. Rather, this, this, this is food. That's what this is. This is food for the weak and the weary to make it all the way through Mirkwood with the truth and the wisdom and the power and strength of God. Everything else in this world will leave you hungry and disappointed. Only the scriptures, only life according to God's word in devotion and dependence on Christ will actually bring lasting satisfaction and joy because it is the way that life was meant to be lived. That's what God has given us. That's what he's revealed to us. The Bible is the sufficient revelation of God for the life health, and ministry of the church. If you stick to this path, by God's grace, you will make it through Mirkwood. If you leave the path, if you depart from the scriptures, you may never find it again. You may never find it again. Don't leave the path. Preach the word. Hold fast to the word. To quote Moses one more time, for it is no empty word for you. It is your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. May that be true of us, friends. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to your people. Thank you that we have confidence every time we open this book that the God of the universe is speaking. 
Thank you that through this book, you point us to your son in whom we have eternal life. Lord, let us never neglect the scriptures. Let us never ignore them. Let us never depart from the path. Keep us fixed to your word that we might be the people you call us to be and that we might delight in and be devoted to you, Lord, as your faithful children. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.